Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Fosswa, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Sheila Banerjee, a journalist and academic who worked for many years at the BBC and Channel 4 directing programmes before leaving TV to undertake a PhD on Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot. She's just written a fantastic new book, called What's in a Name, which distills the story of 20th century immigration to the UK told through our names. Sheila Banerjee's first book is a blend of history, memoir and politics, and it also tells us the story of multicultural Britain. Sheila, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. Hello. Hey, so, so Sheila, what is in a name? Why did you choose to focus your book on names? I think it's like it, it kind of combines two real sort of passions, probably. Um, I love words. I went back to college in my 30s to study English and I did a PhD. And, you know, these are two two or three or four important, really important words. And I love stories. You know, I was a documentary um, filmmaker before and I worked in TV and I just love telling stories of people's lives. And so... I, I, when I started thinking about my own name, suddenly it's almost like a sort of, you know, like a mini poem or a historical record. As soon as you start thinking about, you know, why you were given a particular name, what it means in terms of the political context around it, there's so much there. And especially as an Asian in Britain, growing up in Britain and spending my adult life here, it seemed to me that it contained so much. Is there anything that you discovered on this journey about your own name? I mean, how much did you actually know? Because obviously you uncover a lot of information about your background, about your family, about your history. How much of that were you aware of? And has that changed how you feel about your own name? I think that's a really good question because I, I, I knew a bit and I had my own kind of feelings about it. So you know, my, my first name, Sheila, I think, especially as a child, I really, I, I used to feel really uncomfortable with it. I think because, um, you know, I had this very kind of English sounding name that actually in the 70s and 80s, as a child, it belonged to much older English ladies as my immigrant parents didn't really know that it was an older generation that had that name. So it felt really like a, almost like a dress that didn't fit. But yeah, I mean, I had my own feelings to Towards it, but as I did the research, I found out so much more, particularly about you know uh, about the relationship of my sort of Bengali forebears or a group of Bengalis that I'm connected to and the British Empire, but also about empire itself because in my surname Banerjee itself is a kind of story of empire. It's not my actual name originally. 
Banerjee, which is an anglicised version of the name, was the Banerjee was Bondobadthaya. And when the British came along and took over India, uh, at some point in that sort of very uncomfortable, oppressive relationship, they changed our names. And there's that story of colonialism with, within there. And I found out so much about that during the research. And I guess the when I was reading that, you know, that, you know, your own name has a consonance that's linked to the British Empire, because actually it isn't your ancestral name, um, which is a bit mad, really, isn't it? Like, you're, I know. You're, yeah. I mean, uh, if you think about it, um, what I mean, has it changed how you feel about history and the history of that you contain within yourself as a person as a you know British Asian person who you know I guess grew up in the British educational system with a certain telling of history and a certain telling of colonial history yeah how how has it shifted that I think it's really shifted um I think um in terms of what I understood about it as a child it was just you know I just had a funny foreign name because I grew up in a very sort of white working class mainly working class area uh, on the edges of West London in Hayes but I I especially whilst writing this book I was writing this book during um, when the whole Black Lives Matter protests erupted and there was so much conversation suddenly about not just slavery which was incredibly prominent and and widespread at the time but also about the role of Britain in the whole sort of colonial enterprise and it was right at the time that I was writing about my own name and Britain's own role not only in India but also in West Bengal in the very place that my family are from and I think from growing up here and going through the education system I studied Um, history for O-level, because we did O-levels at that time, and I also did it for A-level, and I studied 20th century history, and I barely knew anything about Britain's role in, in, in India. It was mainly basically the study of Nazism, of Stalinism, with maybe a tiny, tiny bit, maybe like a few days spent on, on the study of Britain's colonial role. And um, in terms of just the basic bald facts, I, I felt like I, for the first time, I properly understood about the ruthless extraction of wealth that went on, the transfer of wealth from my ancestral country, from India uh, to Britain in terms of, you know, the extraction of taxes, of the, uh, you know, the extraction of cotton, silk, spices at greatly favourable terms that helped actually, you know, provide the basis of the Industrial Revolution in this country and the basis of the power that exists in this country. And it's not something that I felt like as I was growing up that was really even understood by someone who was studying that in terms of up, you know, up until A-level, it just wasn't really a thing that was discussed. Yeah, and I mean, that's a sort of recurring theme, isn't it? That we, there are, the erasure of parts of history means that so many people who are from, uh, I guess, non sort of white majority identities but I guess even within that I suppose you know if you're if you're Irish you might not feel like the official 
British version of Irish history yeah. is necessarily yours either. But I suppose to, to the extent that minoritized identities are not um, don't have their histories reflected in terms that um, are going to be intelligible um, to anyone who lived through those experiences. Do you, because um, you, you in the book you go through the history of several different communities through the, through names. Yeah. Was there anything in that exploration that you felt brought um, understanding of our wider British identity or some of the failings within that to the fore? Was there anything that you discovered in that that you thought, you know, this is just looking at a name, but it's revealed so much about, you know, a part of our history that should be known? I think I think there were several things that came out in terms of, you know, thinking about it more widely. It was um, in in terms of how much how much, uh, you know, as children, I think the, the books about me and my friends and a group of friends, how much we all kind of experienced quite sort of severe racism or in the case of my my Jewish friend Marcella, her ancestors, her great grandparents, when they came over here, how much hostility there was towards um, you know Jewish migrants that came over here, escaping the pogrom, similar to the people that might be arriving on the boats now. And then thinking about our names, um, I suppose what struck me in a way was was how through this simple thing of your names you can tell so much about power dynamics and in a way the fact that a lot of us um you know in terms of asian people have had to adapt or change their names or the discomfort that people might feel with their original names in a situation where they've arrived as immigrants and feel forced to accommodate themselves to, towards the more powerful host country, it kind of shows through the way that people change their names often or in terms of the names that they choose for their children. So, for example, my parents had arrived here in the late 60s. Uh, they, my mum had arrived in the late 60s and my dad arrived in 1959. This was an incredibly, it was exciting for them, but it was also incredibly difficult for them. My dad was in Wolverhampton for the first few years of being here. And this was a place where his local MP was Enoch Powell, who was banging on about, you know, how immigrants were a real threat to the white population. Um, he had real difficulties find, finding a Accommodation. It was all sort of, you know, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, etc. You know, my mother, when she came, she felt like she was sort of, um, you know, people were treating her as if she was ignorant because her English wasn't that great. And, you know, she often felt like she was, um, you know, that, that people were looking at her in a hostile manner on the streets. If she was wearing a sari, she was abused. Um, not, I'm not saying that all of it was terrible at all because they both really also found it incredibly exciting being in this new country, but they were definitely at disadvantage in terms of the power relations. And I think the kind of hybrid name that I've been given is a sign of the way in which they were really trying to accommodate themselves to make their kind of almost their, their child and themselves more making it more comfortable for the English people around them to be with. Mm, 
I want to pick up on that. You say in the book, and I quote, Indians of my generation have often felt obliged by constant mispronunciations, misspellings, and casual mockery to change their names. You then go on to say, I wonder, as Indians, if the act of abbreviating our names is a shorthand for the compromises we make. Those compromises were particularly salient uh, I would say maybe for your parents' generation. I'd be curious to hear how salient they were in your own choices of, for example, naming your child and, and whether you or your children, do, do you feel like that, that, that promise has failed in some ways? Uh, you know, as someone kind of looking at the ways in which there was so many attempts for various communities to... Uh, you know, as you say, accommodate, integrate, assimilate the different terms that we hear bandied about around the idea that uh, immigrants have to make um, changes in order to uh, make themselves, to some extent, inconspicuous. Is that how we are, yeah. you know, perceiving I, this? Yeah. I, I think you're, it's, you, yeah, that's a great word, actually, to make ourselves in, inconspicuous, this kind of trying trying to fit in. And I, I feel like often it's a sort of lifelong process. Um, but also, on the other hand, you know, there have been, there have been changes, huge changes in this country. Um, I can't, I can't say that they were always easily won. You know, it's been 50 years. If I think about my generation and what I've grown up through, 50 years of resistance and protest from groups like, um, you know, Southall Monitoring Group or the New Monitoring Group or, you know, all the uprisings in Brixton and Toxteth and newspapers like The Voice and activists, like so, so many that I, I can't even begin to name them, you know, all, all the sort of activists, politicians, the people that are speaking continuously, um, people like, you know, Doreen Lawrence now, who's been campaigning for so long. And there have been changes along the way. Of course, there have, you know, beginning with probably, um, I think, the Race Equality Act. But also, I think, for my generation, I think we were we were born here, and as such, we are in a more privileged position than my parents. And I do feel that whether or not everybody agrees with me, it's a different matter. I feel like I have a right to be, uh, to be to both be here, but also to be who I who I want to be. That might not always be um, comfortable for everybody, but I think there is more space to do that. But obviously. I think it ebbs and flows. You know, you have a, a shift forwards for a time, as we've seen recently, you know, in 2020 after Black Lives Matter, it, felt, it really felt like things were changing. But you've seen a huge backlash to that with, you know, things like stop the boats, the way we treat asylum seekers, the whole kind of anti so-called woke, uh, you know, comments daily, you know, in the media. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. It's sometimes very difficult when you're, you're faced with that. But I do think there is a difference between the 1960s, say, and now. And I mean, is that a difference that is in the nature and form uh, or is it an, a, a change in degrees how would you qualify the shift because to some extent you might have expected that the promises of multicultural Britain 
which I think have long evaporated. Let's be honest, does anyone even use the term multicultural in a positive way anymore? Certainly yeah. with a positive term, you know, in the 90s uh, and, and I think even in the 2000s. And there's been a shift in the last, um, you know, at least two, one or two decades that have meant that those terms are now vilified you know it's like something went wrong there so but the promise of multiculturalism was that all of all Britons regardless of their backgrounds should be entitled to celebrate their heritage their identity as part of a kind of hybrid tapestry that we all occupy as what we might call modern British identity has that promise actualized in any way um i i think you know it's it is a complex picture and in many respects um i think there is sort of di di it applies differently to different groups so obviously i'm second generation and in terms of being accepted in this country i think it's different for me compared to somebody who's a recent immigrant here, I think life could be incredibly tough and almost as tough for them as it may have been for my parents. And you see that in the way that, that, that um, you know, the, the whole debate about immigration at the moment. And I think that filters down to the way that immigrants are treated on the streets, perhaps in places, you know, that where they're housed, where there may not be that much of a huge, uh, where there may not be that many um numbers of other multicultural residents so I think it's it's very different and I can only speak for myself I think I think perhaps uh in some respects it's much better because when I go to my main religious function now um which is Durga Pujo this is the main uh religious festival that Bengalis celebrate for example uh when I, when I, for example, wear a sari and, and I'm traveling maybe on the tube to get there in my sari, I don't feel afraid in the way that I, I would have felt afraid for my mum being out on the streets in a sari, or I don't feel afraid to walk into a pub wearing that sari. But obviously it depends where you are in the country. In London, where I live, I don't think I do. And I and a lot of my friends uh, will, you know, will say, oh, that's really nice if they see somebody wearing a sari. Whereas I don't think it was it was at all comfortable for my mum, my aunts wearing even their own clothes in the 60s, you know, which is which is the sari. That was the normal day to day wear for them in India. So just in terms of things like that. Um, but also, but on the other hand, what I would say is that I think many of me and my friends were slightly, you know, under an illusion and perhaps a whole kind of mythology surrounding new labour sort of fed into that. And we thought, you know, we're in a different era now. We've got rid of the Tories and, you know, in terms of race, we're going to be on a kind of upward trajectory. And I think in 2007, when I named my daughter and I gave her a really obviously foreign name, I think I was in that world where I thought in terms of multiculturalism, in terms of race, that yes, things had been bad, but they were always going to be getting slightly better. And I really don't know if I still feel that, especially after Brexit. Mm, yes, no, I, I hear that. Well, especially obviously with how long um, the Conservatives have been in power Um uh, in this country, it's it's sort of hard to remember that there is an alternative 
um, in yeah. many ways. Um, in in terms of, so you, you obviously say you, you chose, um, as you describe it, a foreign sounding name. Is that how you described it for your daughter? Um, was this a deliberate attempt to uh, kind of keep her connected to her roots in some way? I mean, how did you come to that decision and um, what was it about the name that was important to you? I think it was both things. It was some of the things we're talking about. It was both feeling feeling that, yeah, I, I, I do feel more comfortable here as a citizen of this country than my parents would have felt when they named me and gave me this kind of British sounding name to, to be kind of, um, you know, to fit in. Um, but also I think I felt some anger in the fact that I felt um, that I felt that I shouldn't have to hide my heritage, that, uh, you know, why should I? Why, why shouldn't her heritage and my heritage be present? And I, and I wanted it to be known uh, that it was it was a Bengali name or at least it wasn't you know it not you know I really like English names but for her I felt like it should obviously be a name that signaled a different heritage and part of that was about wanting to get away from that feeling of always trying to assimilate and I think in certain respects you know my community not not a lot of people actually I often have to explain what kind of Bengalis we are we're, we're not Bangladeshi we're Bengalis from India and I think they were always slightly trying to blend in they a lot of Bengalis didn't teach their children to speak the language um, and we don't have the same presence that say Bangladeshis or Punjabis or Gujaratis have you know Bengalis often lived away from one another partly in a way not to bring attention to themselves by living all you know all together in one place and sometimes and I know it's 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 you know they had a really difficult time here but sometimes I want to fight against that and in a way naming is a small act of you know just a bit of personal resistance to that feeling I don't want to have to assimilate in that way. And have you um kind of explored the reason for that because I suppose um it's interesting you describe naming as an act of resistance that's something I really relate to and you know I very deliberately gave my son a name that speaks to his Muslim heritage because it was very important for me that because he presents um as you know racially as white that he mm. is connected to a heritage that goes beyond whiteness both for himself yeah. but also for wider society you know I think yeah. there's you know, a little moment that could be perplexing but there's actually really important um in in when people sort of go oh um you know they ask him to repeat his name and, and often anglicize it actually um because <laughs> they assume it's going to be an anglicized name and um I was wondering whether that act of resistance for you felt connected to the fact that the our children will carry with them a responsibility to uphold parts of um, our common identity, societal identity, you know, British identity, I guess, um, that might otherwise be erased. And I wonder whether 
you connect that to whiteness and the way in which whiteness operates. Obviously, historically, we saw that whiteness operates through erasure, through er physical erasure of cultures and peoples and languages. And um, but mm. also, you know, with that, um, the erasure of identities. Um, mm. um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely I definitely um, wanted a name that almost halted that erasure in its tracks because I think with my own name there is, there is partly an erasure when you look at my when you or well, when you hear my name my identity isn't there you know if you hear the name Sheila and part part of the reason why I didn't take on my husband's surname uh, you know I'm married to somebody who's English whose surname is Cannell you know if I if I was Sheila Cannell then my heritage is gone and it, people can't see it there unless they actually speak to me. And I think definitely with my daughter's name, I wanted to stop that. Obviously, you know, it's up to her whether she carries it or not. But I think your name is a quite a fragile thread, but it's still a thread to centuries of history and heritage and identity. And because you say it, the whole time you say it every day it almost becomes a part of yourself in a small way and I think that's why it's important and that's why in a way people find it hurtful or annoying or really uh, traumatic when people repeatedly say or pronounce their names wrong um, and so it is important even though they're just words and they often feel like they're just mundane things they're an, an important way of passing on some kind of identity, some kind of culture from 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 where where my parents are from. On that note, actually, you, you raised something that I really wanted to ask you about because I think a lot of um, people um, might think, well, you know, oh, I'm because we hear it all the time, people's names being mispronounced, and you know. Some people will, you know, react and say, well, oh, you know, sorry, could, you know, my name's actually, you know, X. Can you can you try and pronounce that again? And and sometimes, you know, they'll get a, a very um, conciliatory response, but sometimes they can get an aggressive response. Right. Which is a bit like, oh, you know, stop trying to annoy us with your name. Can I, can't, can I just call you Sue? Um, <laughs> yes. You know, and I'm sure you've probably experienced this or, or you know, come across it many times. But how do you read those situations when you know and this is typically a situation where someone racialized as white might be called out on their pronunciation which you know in itself isn't an attack on on your person but reacts quite negatively to being asked to pronounce the name correctly how do you read those interactions I think it can it can feel incredibly diminishing and I, I, I think it sort of speaks um, of, of power really it may see it, it may feel like an individual thing and, and names are difficult sometimes difficult to pronounce that are in a different language that come from a different linguistic kind of heritage but you know for example I mean I've obviously not had it because Sheila is both an English name and a Bengali name as well but, you know, virtually all my cousins, my parents have had to change their names because of it being mispronounced. And I remember my cousin telling me my cousin's name is this beautiful name. It's um, of a film star who was popular in the 70s. And it's Mo Shumi. So uh, it's Mo Shumi. So not that difficult. Um, 
But she says every time at school they had a new teacher, there would be sniggering and laughing and with one teacher even refusing to call her by this name for the entirety of her time at school. So it, it became incredibly difficult. And she just changed Moshimi just to Mo. And Mo really is a name that doesn't have any meaning. Um, mm. And it's kind of torn from its linguistic roots. And and I think that's def very definitely it's about not just power over an adult over a child, but the uh, it speaks of power also within the society, I think, because people feel that they don't quite have to. It's not really incumbent upon them to try and get the pronunciation right. If you reverse that, for example, if you think of the British in India, and obviously they were in an incredibly powerful situation, I'm talking during colonial times. You, you didn't find that the British uh, shortened their names, took on names that were both Indian and English. They kept their original names and expected us as Indians to be able to pronounce them. There was no accommodation or very little accommodation then. So I do think that individually it might make life easier and that's why people might shorten their name. You know, for example, my dad shortened his name from Balaji, uh, which is B-A-L-A-J-I, Balaji, so fairly easy to pronounce. But he was, like I said, he was in Wolverhampton in the 1960s and he was finding it hard enough to get a job, get somewhere to live, let alone trying to get people who are often being completely bombarded by racist statements all around them from politicians and from the media to try and get them to get his name right. And again, I think it tells, it speaks of your vulnerable status as an immigrant trying to make a home in a new, often hostile country. So I often, I think it's, it, it can really be, it can really illuminate the power structures within the surrounding society. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will never forget an anecdote from um, a British uh, Asian friend of mine who got a very, I won't say any names, but a very senior job at the BBC. And he headed up a big department where he was the only person of colour in the department. And on his first day, he um, went around and met uh, the other people in the office. And, you know, um, they were, you know, it was the Johns and the Janes and the Marys and the Sues. I'm yeah. caricaturing, but you, you get the picture. And so yeah. he, he went around pretending to um, not be able to pronounce their names and renamed them all <laughs> Fatima, Aisha, Ahmed. <laughs> Yes. And for the for the for the content for the for the, uh, the whole extent of his time there, he only ever referred to them by these names. I just thought this was absolutely <laughs> hilarious because they were yeah. just bamboozled by this. But it but it was it was it speaks to the power play that you just referred to, right? Which is actually when somebody does that to you, how do you feel about not mm. being kind of fully seen for who you are and sort of being in, having a name imposed on you that has nothing to do with who you are but might be easier for the person in front of you and yeah so I think yeah. those those power dynamics obviously are, are, are a big facet of whiteness a big aspect of the way in which sort of whiteness operates as a sort of implicit hierarchy of value which says well you know you know explicitly or implicitly whiter sounding names are quote-unquote more appropriate or read acceptable socially acceptable um yeah and, and I think it's it's um 
it doesn't you know in terms of yes it's and it, you, you at the moment you know you would say or in the recent history you would say that applies to you know often darker skinned people but I think at the turn of the century with Jewish people it was exactly the same so my friend Marcella's grandparents who were Russian Jews who fled the pogroms um, in Tsarist Russia in in the early 1900s they were called um, Haya and that was her great-grandmother, and Maya, her great-grandfather, and the surname is unknown what it may have been. It may have been Gates, Gatsky, or it probably wasn't Gates. It may have been Gats or Gatsky or Gershevitz. It's unclear. But as soon as they came over here, um, we found out in the census in 1901, they had changed those very obviously Jewish first names of Haya, and Maya to Annie and Lewis. Again, I think as a, it, it sort of speaks of the complete sort of powerlessness and the absolute sort of, every, they did everything they could to fit in and to survive. And changing their names was one of their first acts of survival in a very hostile environment. And I suppose the big difference with um, sort of communities of colours that, you know, a couple of generations down the line, Annie and Lewis just look like any other white British Annie and Lewis, whereas, you know, Sheila will still be asked questions about, you know, obviously Sheila here being you would still be asked questions about your heritage. Your daughter probably would still be asked questions about that heritage because the sort of visibility of difference continues to be carried through as a marker of separateness um, yeah yeah which, that's which, always yeah okay. which is the skin color will remain the, the skin color remains as as a high as a kind of continued marker of hierarchy in our society and I think that's the bit that sort of the the, the movement for equality can continues but ultimately we know that um, the, the, the the names can change but ultimately they won't erase the ways in which people are perceived, uh, you know, once you get face to face, ultimately. Um, now you, you say something in the book about um, names in Britain as, are a social code that we all understand. Um, I wanted to ask you about that in relation to both, I guess, race and class in this context. Yeah, I mean, I I think looking back now, one of the places that I really felt this was when in my 20s, um, I got a job at the BBC and I, I worked as a uh, in TV, both at the BBC and, uh, you know, several production companies. And there was such a stark difference in, say, if you just think of the female names that I'd grown up with at my working class school, uh, both my primary and secondary school, you know, names like Lisa, Tracy, Donna, Michelle, you know, where were those people when I got to the BBC? When I got to the BBC, it was suddenly all Charlottes and Lucy's and Sophie's and Emma's. And, you know, obviously these people, some of them ended up, as they say, becoming my best friends. But there was obviously the names were a marker of a massive uh, 
massive amount of privilege that was going on in terms of class like who who was it that was working in you know uh, an organize, organization like the BBC who was being allowed through those through those gates to actually work in what was quite a powerful place to be and the names were clearly signaling that it was a certain kind of uh, certain kind of person same kind of class and often the same race um so yeah I, I think it's not the only thing but I do think names are a huge marker of class and you can often tell what is going on with class if you look at the names of the people that are working there and even now if I kind of go online now you know the BBC to a certain extent a lot of it has been hollowed out and a lot of television programs nowadays are made by huge independent production companies if you go on to those production companies website pages where you have that kind of meet the team page a most of them are white and b again it's those you know the 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 emmas the lucys the charlottes the kates the juliets the lauras you know again not many tracys not many donners if you're looking at people that are my age the working class names that uh, that were around that were prevalent at the time I don't see many of those names in things like media in academia or or even in publishing mm, yeah and often if you see them they're the production coordinator <laughs> yeah <laughs> or, or a, a IT a very yeah very important role actually but uh, I'm I'm sort of suggesting that it's still a kind of organisational role rather than a um, substantive uh, role in terms of the nature of the programmes that are being made per se. Um, I, I wanted to ask you um, about the other aspect of naming before we go on to the um, uh, quick fire round. Sorry. Um, I wanted to ask you about the extent to which we are, um, when we lose other aspects of um naming because in other cultures there are names that are given that have ultimately different meanings uh, beyond simply giving someone a name that they can be identified with so I'm thinking for example in Turkish culture which I'm slightly more familiar with on this occasion which refers for example to the uh, you know if you're going to talk to somebody that's older than you you're more than likely not going to refer to them by their first name probably call them yeah. Arby yeah. you know you'd call them Arby or if they're you know woman Abla or uh, you know uh, yeah or, or we or we often in here in the UK will say auntie right you, you wouldn't call somebody yeah, yeah. you wouldn't call somebody's mum by her first name in many in many uh, communities you'd always say auntie or um or Hajja you know in the Muslim community you know it's like as a, as a term of, of deference so in, in yeah. terms yeah so in terms of names that we uh, we're, we're almost limited in a way in, in western culture to the kind of formalistic naming but is there another layer to naming that you kind of uncovered that offers new layers of richness to identity that we could maybe benefit from what, what did you I know you've talk a lot about it in the different communities yeah no yeah, definitely. definitely I mean, I mean um, um, sorry am sorry, I, I going really badly? badly oh no not at all no. 
so I was uh, one of the things that became um, I, I started thinking about was how in Bengali culture, you know, when I lived in India, you'd have one person would have an, uh, would have so many different titles, and as you say, a lot a lot of it was based on uh, respect for age, and that was a huge thing. And so, for example, if I take my uh, aunt, who was my dad's sister. Uh, and she was the oldest sister. So she she had a, a dark nun, which was a nickname. And that sort of was a name that was only used in the family. And she was called uh, Luchmi. Um, but her Bhalunam, her, her good name for the official world, was Munjushri. Um, but then to me, she was Boro Pishi. Boro means oldest and Pishi means aunt on the father's side, so your father's sister. But then to my cousins, who, uh, you know, to her sister's kids, she would be Boro Mushi, so uh, oldest aunt on the on the on the sister's side and then there would be all kinds of other titles as well so you know she'd have a different title for her husband's family's kids you know she might be jetty ma or kaki ma or you know she could be mummy ma you know there's so many different titles for one person and it would set what i would call her or somebody else would call her would immediately explain both to her and to the outside world and to me, what relationship she is to me. And um, it would be, and everybody understands this exactly. And often it's, uh, there's a gradation according to age. And if you have a title that kind of signifies that you're older, you also accompanying that, you would have sort of rights and responsibilities, and also you'd be accorded lots of respect. So, for example, when I went over there, my cousins, who are kind of regarded as siblings over there, and they're called, you know, born, which means little sister, or uh, Didi, which is older sister, my cousins often wanted to call me the title for older sister, which is Didi. And me being from England, I didn't I didn't really like it because I felt like, oh, no, my name's Sheila. I don't want to be called Didi. But actually, it's a sign of it's a sign of respect. Even if I was just a few months older, I still was a Didi and I was to be accorded respect. But also it was my duty as the older sister to look after these little cousins. So there's a whole layer of relations that when I was writing the book, I suddenly kind of realised that, oh, my God, there's so many different titles that are around. Mm, and, and I guess the erasure of those names comes with the erasure of community. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, teenage you probably wasn't a big fan of the responsibility side of community. But there's, um, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in increasingly sort of individualistic societies that we live in, I suppose there's something to be said for terminology that carries within it a sense of deference towards the elderly towards older people um and responsibility towards those around us i was struck that you know the name the exploration of names goes beyond um just the names that we might have on our passports but to the loss of names that connects us that connect us to community as well mm. Mm. Um, and so yeah 
I mean, yes, definitely. So my, my friend Maria, when she was naming her son, you know, the the tradition, the strong tradition in, in Greek Cypriot culture, which she's from, was to is to name your the firstborn son after the grandfather, the paternal grandfather if he's around, or the maternal grandfather if he's not around. And so Maria felt this huge pressure to name her son after her father. And uh, her father's name was Polycarpos. And she just didn't feel in, in, you know, early 2000s London that that would be a name that she could give to her son, that she would be confident that it wouldn't become a burden. Um, and there was this whole tension. You know, it's difficult speaking for her, you know, because she's she's my friend. But, you know, as I understood it, there was a whole tension um between what she felt was her duty and her desire to kind of honour what her father had been through coming over here, but also her duty towards her son and also her own wishes. And there is a tension, I think, in naming um, and in the titles that you might receive about, you know, that desire to hold on to your community and holding on to tradition and your heritage, but also attention with you know your own desires that are separate from the family's role the role that you occupy within the family or the family's expectations of you absolutely well on that note we are gonna have to head over to the quick fire round just because we're running out of time um so okay. questions with quick fire responses if you can slightly nervous now <laughs> um what is your definition of whiteness obviously the show is called we need to talk about whiteness what's your definition of whiteness um i suppose a, a kind of in in the particular epoch that we're in now it's based on skin color and privileges that you might enjoy just because of the skin color but I think it also translates hugely into class and it's very intertwined with class I don't think you can completely sort of just focus on one thing that's my personal view what is the root of racism um I possibly think again this is my opinion and speaking for in the in this sort of particular era uh I I think it's economics probably it's to it's a useful tool to uh sort of mask what's actually going on in terms of uh economic structures and inequality um so yeah that's what I would say in a, in a short answer when it comes to race and racism, what's one thing you wish everybody knew or understood? Um, that it's rubbish. <laughs> it's it's very silly. It's skin colour, for God's sake. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so, and we're all just people. That's That's what I wish they knew. And I wish also that they... I wish people would understand, like currently, I, you know, obviously I think that what's going on with this whole anti-migrant rhetoric that's around, that we're being distracted by racism from the actual sources of the problems, which are about, you know, too few people at the top, a system where too few people at the top have far too much of the wealth, and that's how they want to keep it. So that's that's what I wish people knew, I suppose. <laughs> 
what is the opposite of whiteness? Um, I, I suppose it's being non-white, um, but also uh, kind of it dissolving in terms of something that anyone pays any attention to. It, it seems kind of quite ludicrous, really. We often hear uh, an almost uh, idealised version of the future from some people that speaks to the idea that we could one day be a post-racial society. Is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? Um, I, I suppose maybe because I sort of you know, kind of bought into the idea of multiculturalism. I like the differences partly. So it's not that I want to get rid of all differences. And one of the one of the things that was supposed to be such a compliment when I was a kid, you know, I oh, I just think of you as the same as, you know, English people, you know, and it, maybe maybe I don't quite want that. I think we've all got our amazing kind of differences and things that we can bring so I partly want it to to go away and be in a post-racial society because it's horrible racism is awful but at the same time I don't want to get rid of every little kind of difference between us um thank you so much Sheila if people want to purchase your book where should they head do we have a bookstore of choice bookseller of choice um well I live near Stoke Newington bookshop so that's that I would say that that's a good place to buy it but um apart from that all the usual places I think bookstore.org and Waterstones and if you have to Amazon I suppose or go into your local bookshop with the Amazon page Amazing. Sheila Banerjee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of uh, We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you.